Hi, my name is Paul and I'm a member with Restored Church. If you're new, we want to welcome you and thank you for tuning in. We believe that the church is not an event, but a family that you belong to, so we'd love the opportunity to connect with you. If you want to learn more about our church or if we can help you in any way, please visit our website, restoredtemecula.church, and click on Contact. We also have a mobile app with resources, including our Sunday messages, information about upcoming events, and other ways to connect. You can download our app on Apple or Android app stores. With all that said, we hope you enjoy the message. Cool. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Herrick. I'm one of the pastors here of Restored Temecula, and I want to welcome you to our Sunday gathering. We're going to continue this morning in our series called Priesthood. And the tagline of this series is Restoring Our Priestly Identity. Now, if you are new and this is your first time, one of the big ideas with this series is that priests reorient their life around devotion and ministry to God. Uh, I talked about it a couple weeks ago, like kind of like this. I think uh, for many of us, we feel very comfortable coming to God. Well, that's not true. Uh, part of growing as a disciple is learning how to come to God like this, asking with open hands. What we're talking about is not that we're against this, we are for this, but we are recovering this, the praise of God, sacrificing, bringing him our sacrifices and our offerings. And we've been grounding this series in, in 1 Peter, where Peter literally applies the idea of a priesthood to the, the church to the disciples of Jesus. It's not just Israel in the Old Covenant, but now it's the church. We are priests. And so this morning, and we're going to continue kind of in that vein. Uh, we're going to spend some time in Philippians to start with, and then we're going to spend some time again in 1 Peter. We're going to circle back in there. Uh, we haven't been in Philippians, so I thought it might be helpful just to kind of share uh, with you a couple things out of that letter. Uh, the letter that Paul wrote to the Philippian church is absolutely fascinating. Uh, there was a church in the ancient world that was actually growing in Philippi. And if you don't know the story, it's, it's, it's a fascinating journey. Paul is actually, if you don't know who Paul is, Paul is, is a missionary. He was a disciple of Jesus who went around the ancient world spreading the good news about who Jesus is. He had a radical encounter with Jesus where he met him. Jesus knocked him, I believe it was off a horse, effectively, kind of like he knocked him off his high horse, kind of literally. And uh, Paul, who had devoted his life to the Jewish way of life, realized, I don't know who God is. He had literally spent his whole life learning about God, and then when God shows up, he's like, who are you, Lord? That's literally what he said. I'm quoting Paul. And he just got knocked off his high horse. And then, uh, and then Jesus turned his life completely around over time. And then Paul eventually became someone who started going around the ancient world telling everybody about Jesus. He would start these little communities all over the place, communities of people that would follow Jesus together. And he actually had a friend whose name was Barnabas. And if you don't know who Barnabas is, Barnabas was called the son of encouragement. He was, a, uh, he was just a guy who loved to build others up. And Barnabas was a remarkable uh, man in the ancient church. And Paul and Barnabas were sort of the first missionary team, and they split, believe it or not. Uh, it's kind of one of those, well, everybody's family history is messy, right? Yours is messy, mine is messy, our personal histories are messy. The Bible's no different. Uh, the Bible actually documents the first missionary team splitting. Uh, they had a sharp disagreement, and they split. And out of that split, Paul went this way, and then Barnabas went that way. Paul went... And he was seeking to obey Jesus, the spirit of Jesus speaking. And he ended up in a place called Philippi. And that is how the church 
started. Paul ended up there. And it's an amazing story. I wish I had more time to go over it. I'm not going to go over it. But basically, people start following Jesus because Paul shows up. And he's, he winds up in prison, and he winds up praising and ministering to God, even in prison, even though he was imprisoned unjustly, and then revival breaks out. All these people come to know Jesus. Great story. Read it. Check it out later. But it's a church that, that it's, it's very personal for Paul, this church. Uh, he loves these people. He, he started this church, and this church was growing. I think it's important to note that. This was a growing church in the ancient world. And one of the reasons why I know that is because Paul's really excited about them. If you read it, he's constantly talking about how joyful he is about the Philippians and their, and their growth and progress. Uh, if, you've, if you've been in the church for a while, you've probably heard a lot of emphasis on joy out of Philippians, which I think is fair, which is fair. But there's another part of Philippians that maybe you haven't heard about. And it's this reality that the Philippian church, they were operating as a priesthood. How do I know that? Because they actually partnered with with Paul financially, and Paul, he uses the language of priesthood at the end of the letter, and he says, the, the financial gift you gave me was a, f- a pleasing and fragrant aroma to the Lord, right? That's priesthood language. So we know this is a church that's embracing this priestly identity and is doing well. However, however, uh, as one, one commentator put it, this church was at a crossroads, okay? They started well as a church. Paul started that church, can't get much better than one of the apostles starting a church and you being a part of it. Am I right? These are people, this, Paul literally met Jesus, the risen Jesus. Paul started that church. They were doing well, but they were at a crossroads. They were bringing these offerings, but they were also facing significant challenges. And the three words that I want to share with you are the, these three R words. Why? Because I love alliteration. <laughs> the three words for the challenges that they were facing were rivalry, resentment, and rebellion. Paul was concerned about the direction that they were going to take in light of rivalry, resentment, and rebellion kind of creeping into their church community. There were people in the church community that were kind of trying to take the church in that direction. So the context of what I'm about to read is a call for unity. Okay? Make sense? Let's go. Philippians 2, verses 1 to 6. It's the Apostle Paul writing to this beloved church in Philippi that he helped to start. He says this, If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, and these are all, the idea is that everybody would answer that yes, right? This is not a hypothetical. It's like, if, this is a, if you're a Christian, this is true. The answer is a resounding Yes. So if there's any of these things, there's affection, there's mercy, there's love, there's fellowship with the Holy Spirit, we're following the leadership of the Spirit, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Verse 4. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Sadly, these verses, and what follows, which we'll check in with later, have become like theological, a theological uh, lab for the doctrine of the of, of, of 
Christology, whatever, doesn't matter. It's just, these verses are very practical. So I want to just put that in front of you. Like these verses are speaking to, to a, a church that Paul wants to practically encourage and equip for something. Because they're about to become a church that starts well but loses its way. And that is possible, to start well and lose your way through rivalry, resentment, and rebellion. Now, what does Paul actually do? Who is he pointing them to? What is he grounding them in? This is, this is interactive, so you guys can answer. What do you think? We just read those verses. This is a check to see if you were listening. It's fine if you weren't. Maybe you can start now. <laughs> yeah, he's pointing them to unity. Okay, why? How? What's underneath that call to unity? Who is underneath that call to unity? It's Jesus. It's Jesus, okay? Now, I want to propose a main idea for this message to you. So if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down, and I'm going to unpack it as we go on, okay? Paul is clearly pointing us to Jesus, and he's showing us the humility of Jesus as being the heartbeat of heaven. Okay, so the main idea, and this should be up here on the screen in a second, the main idea for today's message is that the humble hear the heartbeat of heaven. The humble hear the heartbeat of heaven. There it is. If you're a note taker, I want to encourage you, this is going to make more sense as we journey through this morning together. Why do I mention the heartbeat of heaven? Why do I mention humility, first of all? Because it's literally in the passage. Okay? It's literally in the passage. Uh, Paul says, he calls them to, in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Okay? That's what he says. Humility. And as I've been thinking about, I've been thinking about humility all week. And I've been thinking about it with respect to the church. I've been thinking about it with respect to you, to me, to us. And I keep thinking about uh, one person besides myself um, not because I'm the shining model of, of humility. I'm actually, I'm, re- I'm recognizing that I'm, I'm in very much in process. But the person that I've been thinking about this week is the Apostle John. Now, if you are not familiar with the Apostle John, he was one of Jesus' followers. Uh, we have the, the Gospel of John. We have the, the Revelation that he received, uh, the book of Revelation. And the Apostle John was kind of famous for something Does anybody know, just off the top of your head, what was John known for? Okay, so I'm hearing the the disciple that Jesus loved the most. Okay, cool. Is there anything else he was known for that you guys can think of? Yes. Calling down thunder to consume God's enemies. Do you remember that one? Let's read that one. Uh, This is out of Luke 9, 51 to 56. Okay. Why am, I t- why am I reading this story to you? This is one of Jesus' closest friends. This is where he was at at one point in his journey. It says, in Luke 9, 51 to 56, when the days were coming to a close for him to be taken up, he, this is Jesus, determined to journey to Jerusalem. Jesus sent messengers ahead of himself, and on the way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. So speaking of rivalry, Samaritans and Jews were rivals, Okay? But Jesus didn't really give a flip. Right? He went straight to them. He didn't care. Because he loved them. 
Verse 53, but they, the Samaritans, did not welcome Jesus, okay? Because he determined to journey to Jerusalem. So there's a hubbub, disagreement, and they reject Jesus and reject his representatives who were sent ahead of him. Verse 54, when the disciples, James and John, this is John that I've been thinking about this week, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? This is in the Bible. These are Jesus' followers. You don't know, like, there's a story about fire coming down from heaven in the Old Testament and consuming. So maybe they're thinking they're, like, being biblical. What does Jesus do? He rebuked them. He turned and rebuked them, and then they went on to another village, which I just love so, so much. The Apostle John started off as this, the Apostle of Love is kind of the general consensus, right, that we had as a room of who he is. He started off as a pretty angry guy who wanted to fry people, who wanted to call, he wanted, to, he want, he wanted people to burn. So who do you think of? I tend to think of like, you know, kind of like the people who stand in a, picket, that, whatever, doesn't matter. Um, but as I've been thinking about it, I've been thinking about me. So I've never called down on, on I never asked God to call fire down from heaven on anybody that I can remember. Maybe in some low moments, I've been like thinking about it um, in my prayer closet kind of thing. There's Psalms, whatever. But it got me thinking about me because you could call me a son of thunder uh, as a little, from the time I was a, a small child, I remember getting into my, one of my earliest memories is a fight that I had with a kid at a birthday party. Uh, I would get into fights with kids at birthday parties. I was that child. You, maybe you've had them at your birthday party. That was me. At your kids' parties. Like, I got into a fight with a kid over what it, I don't, don't remember. He probably, I felt disrespected in some way, so I let him know about it with thunder and glory. <laughs> That was, I think I was six. I was still living in Puerto Rico. I hadn't even moved to the States yet. That's how little I was. Um, next memory in seventh grade, I broke a kid's wrist in the seventh grade. Like, just snapped it like that. I was a big kid. I was a bit about this size in seventh grade, dropping, you know, less 30 pounds. Uh, I was getting made fun of in school. And I just kind of like, I couldn't handle it anymore. And then like, the day, the day came and I snapped. And I snapped him. I didn't even get in trouble. I think the school was like, I don't even know what to do with this. I didn't get in trouble. Uh, my junior year picture, I have a black eye because I was in a fight a couple days before uh, I was a, taking pictures in, in, in school. Why am I telling you this? Because if, if anyone knows anger and wanting to call down the fire of heaven, it's me. Uh, and it's not like all of a sudden when I became a follower of Jesus, all of that just magically went away. I wish I could tell you that it did, but it didn't. Did I change? Oh, yeah. I'm a different person than I was, than I was then. Do I still feel sometimes like that desire to, to fight? For sure. To react out of resentment? That was the big word for me this week was resentment. Uh, John, in this little story that we see, probably was dealing with some resentment that was kind of out of control. And he literally called upon the Lord, grounded in scripture, and was like, let's do this thing. Jesus was like, no. No, and, and stop being ridiculous. And that's where the sons of thunder, thank you, Trevor, that's where that, that comes from. Okay, 
What's, what's my point in telling you guys this? I need this teaching just as much as anybody else. I need Jesus just as much as anybody else. Uh, I've, I found myself just this week pulled back into that old space of resentment. This week was a crazy week, so much going on, so many, so many things happening. And I found myself identifying with John, uh, not necessarily calling down fire from heaven, but feeling that desire to do so. Maybe you've been there before. And the context for me is I'm a pastor, so it's always church. That doesn't mean that all my issues are, are church-related, not, not by any stretch of the imagination, but I know that resentment can live in my heart. And so when Paul is writing to the Philippians, he's not just writing to them, he's writing to me. And he's writing to you. Because we all share the same temptations. All the temptations that I face are common. And the same is true for you. So I want to put that in front of you guys. It is possible to start well and to lose our way if we're not careful. If we're not careful. If we're not careful and we don't have our eyes fixed on Jesus. And don't cultivate his attitude, which is an attitude of humility. Now, why do I mention the humble hear the heartbeat of heaven? Why do I mention that? Again, humility is in the text. But I just kept thinking this week about John. I just kept thinking about him. Because he was so changed by the end of his life. He was so changed by the end of his life. Listen to this. One more, I'm going to give you guys two more things on John as quickly as I can. This is out of Mark 10, 35 to 45. I'm going to read these verses to you. James and John, here they are again, sons of Zebedee, sons of, sons of thunder, approached Jesus at one point in their life together doing ministry and said, teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. Great way to start a conversation with Jesus. And Jesus what do you want me to do for you? What an amazing response he asked them. Uh, they answered him. So Jesus always waits for a reason to rebuke us. <laughs> so he's curious. He practices curiosity and not judgment. Verse 37, they answered him, allow us to sit at your right hand and at your left hand in your glory. We want to reign. We want to rule. We're not going <laughs> to... We're going to make the ask after you tell us that it's okay to ask. So they asked. And then Jesus said to them, verse 38, you guys don't even know what you're talking about. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink or be baptized with a baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? Which, by the way, I'm convinced they have no idea what he's saying. We are able. <laughs> they, haven't read, they hadn't lived yet to the cross and this crucif the, the suffering and the loss. They have no idea what they're talking about. Which, by the way, if that's you today, Jesus still loves you. If you have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> we are able. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup that I drink. And you will be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not mine to give. Instead, it's for those for whom it has been prepared. When the disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. So this rivalry then turns them on each other, right? When the disciples heard this, they were, they were angry. Jesus called them over and said to them, so all of a sudden, all this kind of pride leads to punches. Not necessarily like literal punches, but if you find yourself fighting with people a lot, 
there's probably pride underneath that. Uh, so, and by the way, this is happening with Jesus in the midst of them, in the flesh. How many, have you ever been in a spot where just like, I just wish Jesus was right here to tell me what to do? He was right there to tell them what to do. And they're fighting, arguing. So, what do you do with that? I don't know. Let's keep reading. Jesus called them over and said to them, you know, and this is the key here that I really want to focus in on. He said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those in high positions act as tyrants over them. <laughs> Amazing. This is the first time that's ever happened. All right, take it as a sign. This is important. <laughs> However, it's not, so to be, it's not so among you. This isn't the way. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So, John, <laughs> resentment and rivalry characterize his life, right? Uh, maybe a touch of rebellion, too. Because at a certain point, you hear the same things over and over again, you don't do them. What does that make you? A bit of a rebel. But what does Jesus keep pointing them, him back to? His own, his own life. He's our example for how to love and lead in this life. Now, that really touched me, and I'm going to explain that in a minute, because I was reading 1 Peter as well. And 1 Peter has a lot to say about what Jesus just said. It expands upon it. But before I get into that, there's one more little vignette of John's life that I need to, to share with you guys. It's John 13, verses 21 to 26. I've got those in the back. Okay. Now, context here is important. Jesus is about to be betrayed soon. So he's predicting his own betrayal to his disciples. They're around the table. When Jesus had said these things, he became troubled in spirit. So our, our Lord experienced life. And he was troubled sometimes. And he testified and said, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. Okay, this is the famous scene. His friends are around the table, and there's actually a betrayer in their midst. There's a false disciple. There's somebody who's got a really good poker face that doesn't really mean it. And all of them start looking at each other, and nobody goes, Judas, I knew it, right? <laughs> One of those, like, I should have said that out loud. <laughs> nobody does that. They just start looking at each other at a loss to know which, of, which one he was speaking of. Can we just say the disciples usually don't know what's going on? <laughs> so that's you. You're in good company. Let's just own it. Well, oftentimes, we don't know what's going on. They couldn't figure it out. Stop and think about this. You hang with someone for three years that's a deceiver and a liar and is about to betray Jesus and you don't know it. 
That's staggering to me. That's staggering to me. Sometimes things aren't, these things aren't obvious. They will become obvious later, in Judas' case. So they're at a loss. They don't know what's going on. And look at these words, verse 23. I need you to just take this in. Lying back on Jesus' chest was one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Who is that? Our boy, our th- the son of thunder, the resentful, rebellious, rival-related disciple. Gosh. Where, where was he? What was he doing? It says it right there. You guys can say it. I understood. Okay, good. Remember that? Lying on his chest. What happens when you lie on someone's chest? Anybody done that? What, what do you hear? Yes. You hear the heartbeat. So Simon Peter nodded to this disciple and said to him, tell us. We have no idea what's going on. Talk to him. Ask him. Verse 25. Of whom is he speaking? Then he simply leaned back on Jesus' chest and said to him, Lord, who is it? And then Jesus told him what was going on. All right, all right. So a lot of John stories today, obviously. Um, why do we call John the apostle of love? Why is that? Bless you. I shouldn't do that. It's a public speaking um, taboo. Sorry, Carla. <laughs> love became John's favorite word, his favorite topic. And if you read the Gospel of John, what he talk, the way he describes Jesus and the Father and us, it's like a community of love is the way that I've heard it described. This so captured, love so captured and gripped this man that he went from son of thunder to apostle of love. And I believe it's because he became a humble man who heard the heartbeat of heaven because he was close to Jesus. He was so close that he could hear it. They've actually done studies on this. Um, if, you, if you're a nervous Nelly um, and you have a, you know, a spouse in your house, one of the things that you could do Is that a Dr. Seuss? Oh, yeah, no. Well, now it's done. So if you're a nervous Nelly, spouse in your house, lean back on their chest. It's the best, yeah. Thank you. All right, so there was a point to this. Oh, they did a study. Um, where if you're, if you're like a nervous, anxious person, you could actually, if you listen to the heartbeat of your partner, it helps to calm you down. And why am I saying all of this? The Apostle Paul, the Apostle John, and we're going to read this in a minute, and the Apostle Peter, they all got this. The closer you are to Jesus, like you hear the heartbeat of heaven and you become like him. When you're with him. The humble hear the heartbeat of heaven. And guess what it does? It helps them to chill out. So that rivalry, resentment, and rebellion don't mark their lives anymore. So I'm going to read out of 1 Peter. We're going to transition over to an application of what I'm talking about. Okay, so I've just kind of been laying the foundation of humility as the key to unity. 
Now we're going to see how this plays out. There's a hundred different ways that this could play out. There's relationships between husbands and wives. There's relationships between children and their parents. There's relationships between the disciple and the authority of the government. There's all sorts of ways that this plays out. I'm not going to touch on those. I'm just going to focus on this, on the relationships here in the church amongst each other. Why do I do that? Because 1 Peter talks about it. So if we can go over to 1 Peter chapter 5, this is the same letter where Peter called us a priesthood, calls all disciples a priesthood, right? 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 to 10, this is an application of what I've been talking about with respect to how we relate to each other as a church, how we pastorally relate to you, and then how you relate to us, and how we love each other in this way, okay? So we'll start with the elders. Verse 1. Why am I talking to you about this? Because this is becoming very personal for me. Um, one of the things that I, let me keep it brief. Well, God saved me out of the stuff that I was describing earlier, right? He didn't save me so that I can keep beating people up. Uh, he saved me so that I could learn how to lay my life down for people, okay? So I've been called as an elder, this is very, very personal uh, for me. I am a son of thunder by nature. This is what I've been called into. So it says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness the sufferings of Christ. So this is Peter talking. If you don't know the story of Peter, uh, Tom, Tom talked about it last week, actually. And he talked about how we can behold Jesus in our failures. Peter had a major, major failure which is actually really encouraging, should encourage us, as I know, I'm talking to you and me as elders, like Peter messed up majorly, but he was restored. And so he is a witness to the sufferings of Christ, Peter is, but he also kind of brings himself down a notch to be like, I'm a fellow elder with you elders. And then he says, as well as one who shares in the glory about to be revealed, there's good stuff coming. I'm gonna read about it in a minute. This is, what he, this is what Peter instructs in light of the life of Jesus for people in leadership like myself to do. He says, shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not out of greed for money, but eagerly, not lording it over those, in, see that word? Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the, this is good, ready for this? When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Okay. So I'll just stop there. I have one, one big idea with that. I have one big idea with that, with respect to myself. Elders. So this is for me, for Tom. And really this could apply to anybody who's in any sort of leadership. Be willing to go first and be last. Elders, be willing to go first and to be last. So think about that. Uh, the Apostle John was a guy who wanted to fry the Samaritans, and then he became the kind of guy who would actually include a prominent Samaritan woman in his gospel. Uh, he was a guy who was willing to lay aside his rivalry, resentment, and rebellion so that he could represent Jesus well. 
Peter here is writing to the elders, and he's telling them, like, be willing to go first and be last. So for me, being willing to go first, among other things, means that I am not called to be an example. Uh, to be an example to the flock, to be an example to you. Whether I'm under heat or pressure, to be consistent, to be someone who's not lording over, but coming alongside to love uh, people. Why am I telling you guys this? this? This is what the scripture says, this is what I want you to hold me to. As a disciple who's called into this sort of ministry. Now let's keep going. And we know that John grew in this because he heard the heartbeat of heaven. He learned the love of this, of this shepherd as a sheep. Now Peter doesn't stop with elders and he talks to the church. Verse five. In the same way, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Now there's, there's scholarly debate, friendly debate around, among scholars about who the younger people are. Is that literally like someone who's younger in age? Um, is that somebody who's in a, in a like a kind of complementary role, like a, like a deacon? Um, is, it, is it literally everybody in the church community? And I say, I don't know why we would exclude anybody from that list. We can learn from this. In the same way, you who are younger, and the context seems to indicate uh, church and uh, elders and members, be subject to the elders, all of you, and here's the key, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Because God resists, resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him because he cares about you. That's the key verse, I think, in this whole thing. Be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him. Firm in the faith, knowing that these same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers all around the world. The grace, the God of all grace, who called you into his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. Okay. So for members, so if, if elders are called to a certain kind of life, to be willing to go first and be last. Members in the household of God are called to resist, not, are called to receive, not resist humble leadership. Members receive, don't resist humble leadership. Now, I'm gonna, this is a quote. I don't have the quote back there, so I'm just gonna read it. Peter uses a metaphor of clothing or fastening on garments to speak of the atmosphere of humility toward one another, which should characterize relationships among Christians. And I love this. There's a quality here. No one is exempt from this. Nobody. This isn't like just for followers. This isn't just for elders. This is everybody. Church officers, non-officers, young and old, new Christians, mature believers, everybody. And the term humility speaks of an attitude which puts others first, which thinks of the desires, needs, and ideas of others as worthy of more attention than my own. The word in Greek is actually well-defined by Philippians 2. These two passages that we read today are really linked together. I see Peter as just an application of what it looks like to walk out Philippians 2. Do nothing out of selfishness or conceit, but in humility count yourselves, count others as better than yourself, 
or is more important than yourselves, okay? Christ himself is a great example of this, end quote. That was from Wayne Grudem. Can we throw up quote number one? Actually, can we put up quote number two first? Because I just like throwing you off back there, Sam. Peter recognizes that a great barrier to putting others first and thinking of them as more important as more important is the legitimate human concern, who then will care for me? What about me? It's a real question. It's a legitimate question. If you have that question, Peter gets it. The answer is that God himself will care for our needs. Casting all your anxieties on him is the path to humility, freeing a person from constant concern for himself and enabling him to be truly concerned for the needs of others. Okay. Let's go back to quote number one. I got one more for you guys. So we're gonna, this right here I mentioned earlier I think is the key to this whole passage, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Here's a quote from Tom Schreiner. He says, worry is a form of pride. Okay, once again, we're talking about how pride is what keeps us from experiencing the kind of community or that was potentially gonna trip up these early Christian communities in both Philippi and the community that Peter's writing to. Worry is a form of pride because it involves taking concerns upon oneself instead of entrusting them to God. So taking concerns upon oneself instead of entrusting them to God is, is a form of pride. And can I just say, pride is blinding, so it's not like we're aware of when we're doing this. Uh, I don't have a good analogy for that, but can you imagine something that's blinding? Maybe like a, when you're coming down, when you're driving down the eight on your way to Arizona, we've got a lot of people that drive to Arizona and do this all the time, so you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you're driving at just the wrong time, the sun is coming down, it'll be right in your face to the point of it being blinding and you can't see anything. I remember once being in that, making that drive with some friends during college we're driving, we're driving over to Tucson, I think it was, where some of my friends lived. And uh, she shouldn't have been driving. She wasn't impaired. She was just not a good driver. Um, <laughs> we all knew it. We all, she acknowledged it. It was a joke for us. But we let her drive. So she's driving. She's doing 90. And uh, the music is on so, so loud. Like, so loud. That we don't hear a cop siren behind us. And because we're blinded by the, the sunlight, we can't see the sirens. So we are unwittingly in a high-speed chase. <laughs> Let's just say the cop was not happy when he, pulled it, when he finally got our attention. And at that point, I was so glad she was driving. Because <laughs> he took one look at her and was like, get out of here. She was crying, whatever. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is we can actually be blinded to reality. Pride has this effect where we can't see clearly. We just can't see straight. And we might actually have all these problems behind us that we're not even aware of because of noise, uh, because of blindness. And worry, worry is the big thing that Peter's concerned about here. That isn't just for pastors, that's for members, for everybody. Okay, who's going to take care of me? 
Who's going to look out for me? And so, here's what I thought about this week. And I literally had a moment where I was feeling so, I've had a lot of anxiety this week. I was telling Tom about it this morning. It's just been a very, whatever, uh, anxious week. And I had this moment of like, dude, if I don't turn to the Lord in my anxiety, I'm going to turn on others. If I don't turn to the Lord in my anxiety, I'm going to turn on other people. Because this, this is what Paul's warning about, right? It's, it's rivalry. It's, it, it's resentment. It's, it's rebellion. They can all be coming out of this space of not turning to the Lord. But Jesus, Jesus did. If anybody's been anxious, if anybody had reason to be anxious, it was Jesus. And in the garden, he was sweating blood because of how concerned he was about what was coming. And there was a, you could see him grappling, right? He was grappling with what was coming with the cross. What happened at the end of that time where he turned to God and gave himself as an offering? He became the ultimate high priest. Here's an offering, Lord. Here's an offering, God, myself, my, my blood. And because he did that, now we can have a relationship with God again. We can be restored. But it doesn't stop there. And that's part of the challenge, if I'm just being honest with you guys. I think in, um, for whatever reason, I'm sure there's, there's, some, there's good reasons for it. But I think just kind of like as, and I'm a, I'm, a Western, I'm a member of the Western church. Sometimes it just kind of stops with, I believe. It doesn't go deeper than that. What's lacking is conformity to the image of Jesus, becoming like him. We can believe, but not become like him. And you might be like, whoa, dude, what is that theologically? Well, John talks about disciples who their faith didn't endure. There were disciples who walked away from Jesus eventually over time as pressure and heat was turned up. So what's my point in saying all this? We, we have to learn how to turn to the Lord together. This isn't like a you guys, this isn't just me or we, this is all of us. This is all of us. And it may be as simple as going to a quiet room and praising and praying. That's what I did this week. When my anxiety was getting the absolute worst of me, uh, I went, we have a prayer room. We're going to be opening up soon. Tom mentioned that earlier. Right now it's full of boxes and different things, but I go in there and I close the door and I just worshiped and I praised I didn't talk to anybody about what was going on. Not that I think that's a bad thing, necessarily. Obviously, we need to talk through what we're going through. But I wanted to talk to God about it first. And talk to him about it the loudest. Because he can handle me. Because he cares about me. That's what I'm discovering. Was this week perfect? It was not. But if I hadn't done that, I know I would have become resentful. A hundred percent. 100% 100% resentful. But that's not what Jesus is like. That's not what he's like. As I've been thinking about him this week, one of the things that, that's staggering and stunning is that Jesus was betrayed, he was mistreated, he experienced injustice, and you know what he never became? Resentful. Never. He, was never, he never was 
turned, he never turned against his people. They walked away from him in some cases, but he never turned against them. And he never rebelled against the will of God. He submitted himself to it because he was humble. And again, I'm going to call the band up. We're, we're just about done. I'm going to leave time for praise and prayer. But I just want to leave you guys with this thought, with this picture, because this is the picture that stuck with me this week. Think of John reclining at Jesus's like leaning on Jesus' chest, hearing his heartbeat. That's what I've been thinking about. And as he really discovered the heartbeat of heaven, he became a humble man. And he changed. And so for someone like me, a son of thunder, to become a disciple of love is the greatest call I could ever take up in my life. What is it for you? What are you facing today? that might be keeping you from experiencing Jesus? Is there rivalry or resentment or rebellion that is a part of your life at this moment that Jesus might be inviting you to turn to him and repent of? I'm gonna invite you guys to stand up. I've got one more quote. If you guys could throw up Matthew 11, 28 to 30. I just want to read these words. These are the words of Jesus. He says, really to everybody, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lonely and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus, I want to thank you that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. I want to thank you that the way of humility leads to devotion, not destruction. That the way of humility leads to us fighting together, not fighting each other. When Paul wrote, stand firm together to the Philippians, they were going to resist something, but it wasn't you, Jesus. They were going to resist pride, rivalry, resentment, and rebellion together through humble submission to you. And I thank you that's the same call that we have in our lives as your disciples. I thank you for that. I thank you that even though Satan wants us to lock horns with each other, you want us to lock arms and walk in lockstep, remembering that it's the enemy who's trying to devour us and we don't have to devour each other. I thank you that your love is so evident on the cross and this week is Holy Week, we're gonna be remembering that, that there's grace for our failures, just like Tom talked about last week. But there's more than just grace for our failures, there's also power to live a changed life, like Peter was talking about power to make progress in the faith. The kind of life that God is drawn to, the kind of community life that you're drawn to, God, we want you. Would you come, Holy Spirit? Would you reveal whatever we need to deal with in our own hearts as a community so that we might be the kind of community where your grace is poured out? God, you give grace to the humble. 
Help us now to turn to him. We love you, amen. I'm gonna hand it over to Tom so he can set up a response.